The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And so today we come to the next line in the Apostles' Creed. And speaking of Jesus, this is what it says. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And to guide our time today, why don't we go to God's Word, reading from Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, I'll start reading in verse 11. And some context of this, very briefly, is uh, Jesus, uh, Paul, I mean, sorry, Peter and John approach a man who is crippled from birth asking for money. And, he, and this man ends up being healed, and, and the whole city now is talking about how could this happen, that this man we have known paralyzed from birth is now walking around town, starting in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is God's word. I want to ask you this question. If you had to choose for yourself one word to describe Jesus and his life, what word would that be? And I just want you to think about that, some words that might come to your mind. You know, I thought about this too, and and there might be many that, that are in common with the ones you think about. Awesome, love. Savior, life, righteous, faithful, compassionate, trustworthy. And these are all very true things. And isn't it interesting that one of Jesus' most central followers, Peter, in one of his first sermons that he ever preaches, he says, therefore, he says that, that, that he says, forever, God has revealed himself for millennia to his people over the course of, of many years. And one central characteristic would, 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 would be a portrait for the, for the, the Messiah who would, be, who would come. And that word would be suffers. He suffers. He would be one who suffers. And the creed points us in this direction. Of all the things that we can learn about Jesus, we need to know that he was one who suffered. Suffering wasn't just something that happened to Jesus, but it was the very reason he was born. The gospel writers understood this as well. There are 
89 chapters written of, on a biography of Jesus in the Gospels. The books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are biographies of Jesus, the life and work of Jesus. And 30 chapters are dedicated to the last week of his life. This is interesting that, that it would happen this way. That's, consider this. If Jesus was 33 years old when he died, that's just over 1,700 weeks of his life. And all four biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they dedicate 30% of, his, of, of all of their writing to the final week of the 1,700 weeks. That's like reading a 300-page biography on the life of Abraham Lincoln and 100 pages of that biography being dedicated to the events at the Taft Theater. And you'd, think, and you'd be thinking, isn't there a lot more that happened in this man's life? What about everything in between of his birth and his death? But for Jesus, his death is his story. His death is the most important thing about his story. You would feel that you're not getting the whole story if you just learned about someone's death. But his death is his story. The main thing about Jesus' life is his death, meaning that the death of Christ was the, was the singular event in all of history to which all previous history would point. And his death on the cross is is the singular event in, in, in future history and present history to which we look back. We're to look back at the cross. It's the literal crux of history. When we understand that his death was his story, only then can we understand how our story fits into his story. And so today I want to see how Jesus' suffering confronts a few things in our life. Really, it confronts three idols of our time. The first is that it confronts the idol of personal glory, it confronts the idol of moral goodness, and it confronts the idol of the good life. I just needed a G on that last one. And I was like, okay, the idols of glory, goodness, and the good life. So Jesus' suffering confronts the idol of personal glory. Imagine the, imagine the situation that Peter finds himself in, in this moment and in many other moments. Peter and the other apostles had an opportunity to become incredibly famous. They had an opportunity to become celebrities. They were, they were even eyewitness, eyewitness accounts of, of how the Spirit was working so powerfully in the life of Peter and the other apostles that, that when, when the townspeople heard that they were coming to their town, they would bring out all of their sick and they would line the streets with their sick and affirmed uh, loved ones. Just so that the hope that as Peter walked by, if his shadow was cast on one of their loved ones, they would be healed. That's how powerfully the Holy Spirit was working through the lives of these men to heal them. And that's probably another sermon altogether of what was going on here, but this is the point of that. Peter is resisting personal glory. He has an opportunity to become famous. He, this man is healed by, his, by the words that he speaks, and everyone looks at him and thinks, wow, you must be really great. What is going on? You must have power. You must have insight. You must have something going on with you. And he says, why are you looking at me? This isn't about me. He resists a kind of personal glory that I think you and I would really struggle to resist in a time like that. You see, the, the world tells us in a thousand different ways that, that, if, that the bigger we become, the, the more freer we will be, the happier we will be. The, the richer, the more beautiful, the more powerful, the more security that we can have in our life, the more happy we will be. The world tells us in a thousand different ways 
that if we invest in our glory and we invest in our life, if we invest in us becoming great, then that will be the key to our real happiness in life. And yet Peter uses this opportunity that could have been used for personal glory to teach the crowds and to teach us that the exact opposite was true for Jesus. He says, God glorified his servant, Jesus. And this glory led to Jesus becoming small, becoming handed over to be judged, to be beaten, and to be killed. It all sounds like such bad news at first. Peter's sermon is really off to a rough start. He performs this amazing miracle. Just put yourself in this situation. He performs this amazing miracle. A man who was crippled from birth, that was, he was just as recognized as the gate itself that was recognized in the city because he was such a fixture of the town as this paralyzed man at the gate begging for money. And now the people can walk, and the people are, or now he can walk, and the people are amazed. And Peter turns to them when they notice that this man is now walking. And abruptly he says, you want to know how this amazing thing happened? You killed God. <laughs> I mean, what a way to start off a sermon. You try, try that in the next argument you have with a spouse or somebody else. You know what? You killed God. It's going to even the playing field, I think. But then he goes on and he says, but guess what? He didn't stay dead. God raised him to life. And it is by faith that this crippled man, in the name of Jesus, not a strong man. So he says, this crippled man, this broken man, this weak man, is able to walk. He has been made perfectly healthy because of faith in the man who you killed, that God raised up. And here's the point. We naturally tend to operate towards self-reliance, towards self-dependence. This is our natural way of operating. We are naturally very proud people. We are inheritors of the American dream. We live with a false sense of control. We are people who follow Jesus with this, and hear this, a blessings-addicted faith. We follow Jesus wanting and expecting him to shower blessings upon us if he is truly good. We measure God's involvement in our life based on how he caters to our dreams. And that is what these people see. They see this person is healed and they say, well, you must be really great. And he says, why do you say that? You killed God, but God made him alive. Suffering does not make sense in a blessings-addicted culture and faith. Suffering doesn't make sense. It's something to be avoided. It's something to run from. In a culture and in a faith, if we possess a kind of faith that says, God, if you love me, you will bless me, then when hard things come our way, we are utterly confused. There's nothing like suffering to remind us how not in control we actually are, and how little power we actually have over our circumstances, and how much we ultimately need God. This week, I was encouraged by watching an old speech by the famous evangelist, Billy Graham. And when in 1996, when Billy Graham received the highest civilian honor, the Congressional Medal of Honor, during this elaborate ceremony, in Washington, D.C., attended by President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore and Bob Dole and other high-profile members of Congress and 
community. And standing there after them layering praise upon praise for Billy Graham and what he has accomplished, he gets up there, receives the medal, and then proceeds into his speech. And this is what he says as he's in the Capitol Rotunda. And he looks around at all of the the former presidents and he says, I've walked these halls many times. I've marveled at their paintings of formal presidents. I've studied the lives of the great statues of of great Americans who have come before me. And they all have one thing in common. They're all dead. And then he says this, and one day you will join them. (laughs) He says that to Bill Clinton, Al Gore. He says this to Newt Gingrich. He says, and one day you will join them. And then he says, and all the hospitals that we have built will never be good enough to save you. The highest honor given to civilians, and that's his speech. He has an opportunity to take this praise, to bask in his glory, and to return it back to them and saying, yes, look at what I have done. Look at what I have succeeded in. We love stories that start out with a man or a woman who starts at nothing and over the course of their life becomes great and successful. These are powerful stories that touch on the strings of our hearts that make us say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be that success story. And we do not like the stories that start out with someone who starts with everything and then over the course of their lives loses it all. That's a failure of a life. But Jesus' followers seem to focus so intently on Jesus' death more than anything, where he came into the world with great promise and great expectation, and then he died an unjust death as as, as treated as a murderer and crucified on the cross. This isn't a great success story. From the world's eyes, this is not a great success story. It's a man that was, that was ushered and championed into town, and then he was crucified and led to the cross. What a failure in the world's eyes. You see, we either struggle with this. We struggle with failure for one of two reasons. We, we either we think that God is mad at us, and he is not who he says he is, and he and he's obviously doesn't love us, or <clears throat> God is placing obstacles in our life, in order to teach us to be tough, to teach us to try harder, to build character, to teach us how to build spiritual character. He's, it's as if God is saying, I know this troubling thing has come into your life, but suck it up. You know, rub some dirt on it. You know, get back out there for Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Surely you can try harder to do this for him. And so we say, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do it. Or we say, God, you don't love me. Where are you? You've abandoned me. Both ways are bad. Both ways are bad because both scenarios say that our rescue from suffering and our hope in suffering depends on us. And Jesus' suffering confronts that idol and it teaches us something different. It shows us that what we truly need is not positive thinking or flattery or better self-esteem. What we need is truly something that we cannot do for ourselves but what God has done for us. And of course, this is where Billy Graham goes in his little speech. He doesn't just end there. He doesn't drop the mic and and then leave. He says, we're all going to die. And what we need is something that we cannot do for ourselves, but only what God can do for us. Because it's in Jesus' suffering, it's in his suffering and his death that was the ultimate statement of God's intentional involvement in our lives. 
And we see suffering and we say, God, where have you gone? And he says, it's in this moment that I am most involved. Jesus suffered. And the creed tells us that he suffered. And Peter's sermon starts off this way. Before talking about something great that has happened, he first says, you killed God. You handed him over to be punished, to be beaten, to be crucified, to be buried. But God raised him up. And so Christ's suffering confronts our idol of personal glory that says that true freedom and true happiness in life is in us becoming people of, that are worth God's love. It also confronts another kind of idol, and that is our moral goodness. The creed mentions Pontius Pilate. Why does the creed do that? Well, for a couple reasons. One, probably because we should know that Pilate was a real person and it anchors the story of Jesus, not in fairy tale or make-believe, but it anchors it in a specific time, a specific place, and to a specific uh, a culture. He is the governor. Pilate was the governor, the chief of police. He's the one who hands down judgment for crimes committed. He also represents the legal authority of the world at the time. After Jesus is arrested, Pilate says in John 9, I have the authority to free you or to kill you. And Jesus says in so many words, no, you don't. But that was true in the world's eyes. Pilate had the authority to free him or to kill him. The way that moralism explains life sounds a little like this. Good people get good things and bad people get bad things. Christianity, as we see from Peter's sermon in Acts 3, confronts this way of thinking. How do we know this? Because Jesus, the author of life, is handed over by Pilate to be killed as a murderer. And Barabbas, a murderer, is handed over to go free. We learn this from John 9. This story unfolds in the context of Pilate and his, and his confrontation with Jesus. Christianity is not about good people getting better. If anything, it is about our answers to our failure to be good. This is, today Christian, this is to say Christianity concerns the gospel, which is nothing less than Christ died for sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our pardon. There has never been a greater miscarriage of human justice in the world than Christ crucified. It is this real miscarriage of human justice. We see the heart of Christianity. Jesus, is, he suffered. He died. He was buried for our rescue from the misery of sin and the punishment of death. The wrath of God that we deserved was carried out on Christ. What a miscarriage of justice. What an unjust act that a perfect man would be treated like a murderer and a murderer would be treated like a perfect man. This is what happens. And it is this good news to which Peter points his hearers. He says, repent and turn back so that your sins would be blotted out. He doesn't point them to cope with their wrongdoing. He doesn't, he doesn't point them to cope with their failures by making things right. He points them to Jesus. They must repent, he says. They must completely change their mind about what they believe 
and feel about why Christ came. They must completely change their idea and belief about their attitudes towards sins, and they must receive Christ and all that Christ has done for them. Not so that they could be good moral people, but so that their sins could be wiped out. I want to talk about this for just a moment. Wiped out. What a great way to explain this. It's, it's, this expression, wiped out, is referring to probably ancient, ancient writing. They had to write on papyrus. The ink didn't settle into the paper like it does today. And so there was this opportunity once written that you could actually like, you could wipe it off. It's, you, could, you could erase it out. Imagine this, your entire lives, every, as you walk about your life, everything you say, everything you do, you, behind you, following you, is a scribe writing down every attitude, every thought, every action, every action not done that should have been done, every action done that should not have been done. And I just want you to think about what's on that list. You know, probably front and back, probably multiple pages and multiple journals. What's the most shameful thing on that, on that scribe's notebook? What's the most shameful thing in your Life. We'll start here and we'll just go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this scribe is following you around in your entire life, writing down everything you have done and said. What comes to mind? And I want, do you wonder, wow, I, I, I wish that could just be wiped out. I wish that could be wiped clean, ripped up, erased, destroyed, burned. I just want it to go away. But that scribe follows me around and he reads off from that sheet everything that I have done. Peter reads back to these Jews what is on that list. Some are the worst things you can think about. God sent his promised Savior to you. You rejected him and you, and you had him arrested. And even when Pilate saw no fault in him, you pressured him. And not only did God, did you have him arrested, you had a murderer released in his place. And then you killed the author of life itself. I think he could have just said that. You know, why say all the other stuff? There's nothing worse. Killing God is the worst thing you could do. And it's precisely that which Jesus forgives. It might sound reasonable for him to say, you know, you should have spoken up when Jesus was being condemned. You shouldn't have urged people to hand him over. You should not have mocked him. And they could say, you're right, that was the wrong thing to do. I will get better at that. But there's no excusing it when he says, you killed God. There's nothing they could do to take that back. And then he says, it was for this sin that Jesus died. It was for this very sin that, that he died. It is this very sin that he can forgive. Have you failed this week? Have you sinned? Have you lost your temper? Have you been consumed with, with envy? Have you been unsatisfied by God's love? Have you replaced his love with a lesser love? Have you, have you traded him, him in for something else? If God wipes clean the sin of murdering his son, then why can't he forgive you? Why can't he forgive that sin that you just want to forget? It's hard to believe that Jesus would do a thing like that. It's hard to believe that that's what he has actually accomplished by his death. This is what Jesus claimed, that his death was the only suitable payment for the forgiveness of sins. The most fundamental, basic claim of Christianity is this, God forgives sinners. We might not think of it as a big deal because we probably think of our sin 
too small. We might say, yeah, I, I, know, I, I know I sin from time to time. I probably can get better at becoming a better person. But sin in the Bible is a terrifying thing. Sin in the Bible is it's a punishable thing by, by death as a result of direct rebellion against God, the author of life. And so to be forgiven of sins is the, the best thing that you can hear. The worst thing that you could hear is you sinned against God because the Jewish readers and listeners would have understood what that meant. You're cut off from God. You, you now bear the curse of being a covenant breaker. You are now cast off from his presence and you are now, the, the wrath of God now hangs on your shoulders. And so to be said, to be told your sins are forgiven, that's the greatest thing that you can be told. The love of God manifests in him wiping Wiping your record of sin clean is seen in no clearer place than where Jesus died for our sins, right at the cross. Christians often have a tendency to confuse character improvement with the good news of the gospel. It can sound as simple as this, I was, I was worse, but now I'm better. Or as arbitrary as this, before Jesus I had a really bad temper, but now I'm really patient. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. We should celebrate that growth in our life. But soon, as we talk like that and think like that, we sometimes start to begin to think that what it means to have faith in Jesus is to become better. What it means to trust and rest in Him is to become good. Character development does not equal faithfulness to God. Good behavior does not equal faithfulness To God, the good news of forgiveness comes not through our striving, but through Christ's suffering. And so it is here where Jesus confronts, his suffering confronts the idol of of moral goodness. Because he suffered and he was perfect. And a horrible man goes free. It is there we see this, this great exchange, this substitute, the life of a perfect man for the life of a horrible man. And so it's, we should not confuse what it means to, to know Jesus and faith in him based on our level of goodness. And so there's that idol of personal glory. There's the idol of moral goodness. And finally, there's the idol of the good life. What do I mean by the good life? Well, pain is something that most people try to avoid. And for good reason. That's why we run from it as fast as we can. That's why when we think of living the good life, if you would just think for a moment, what is your ideal life? What does it mean to live the good life? I bet your picture is free of pain and suffering. Am I right? Who would put that? You know, the, the idea of good life, I just think of just the DMV. I just think of, <laughs> you know, when you think of the good life, I bet what comes to mind is things that are free from suffering, free from pain, abundance of comfort. It's already February, so think for a moment about your new resolutions. What kind of life did you hope to have by this time this year that you've already failed to have? Probably something of comfort and security, safety, health, either physically or financially or mentally. Maybe prosperity, financially or relationally. Maybe solid retirement plans in place. When you think about, here's the life that I'm going to live. Here's the life that I hope will come my way. 
you probably picture a life that is great and comfortable. And naturally, we all want these things, and I'm not here to tell you that those are wrong things. It's not wrong to desire as little stress as possible in your life, but it's odd that when thinking about the good life we desire, we are often far too easily satisfied. We settle too short. We settle for comfort. We settle for prosperity. And often enjoying Jesus and seeking him, is often, it often doesn't even register on what it means to have the good life. We're often wholehearted in our pursuit of peace and prosperity, but half-hearted in our pursuit of Jesus. What do you want for your life? Is knowing Christ and pursuing him not just on that list? Is it the best thing in your life? Peter tells us, change the way that you're thinking about the suffering of Jesus and you will be utterly restored, utterly refreshed. If we see this story of this man as a kind of moral lesson that we need to follow, then we will be overloaded with guilt. If you hear this story and think, gosh, I really need to live a better life. I really need to get my act together. You'll lose all the joy in in reading this story and you'll miss the point of it completely. You'll miss it completely. If you want the good life, if you want the peace and comfort, we're really looking for restoration. We're really looking for satisfaction. Peter weaves all these these, uh, many words and phrases together to talk about what we all desire. He talks about healing. He talks about a, a wound that is open and left open to the air so that it can be healed. He talks about perfect health. He uses the analogy of a crippled man that is now running around in joy and happiness. And he says, you too can have this. You can have this wholeness. You can have this good life. You can have this peace and restoration. You could be healthy too. And he mentions their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He references the covenant relationship that God has and has always had with his people. God related to his people through a covenant relationship, and the covenants had blessings, and they had curses along with them. If you wanted the good life, then you, the blessings of God, then you were to be a covenant keeper. You were to be faithful to God. You were to be obedient to his commands. But the covenant curses belong to those who broke God's commands, and that's not the good life. The presence of God was the essence of blessing. The greatest terror in the Old Testament was to be cast out from God's presence as a result of the curse of disobedience that would come on to us. To be cursed by God and to bear his punishment was the greatest terror in the world. And this is what Peter has told us that has happened. Our greatest terror of the curse of failing to obey God has fallen on Christ. And our greatest blessing has been given to us purely by his grace. Why the crucifixion? Why do we have to believe that Jesus suffered, that he was crucified, that he died and was buried? Why is it important that Jesus died by crucifixion? I mean, would it, wouldn't, wouldn't it be the same if, let's say, he was just like, he died by camel stampede, you know, or fell off a cliff? Was, isn't it just important that he died for us? Why did he have to die by crucifixion? He had to die the death of a criminal. He had to die the death of a murderer. He had to die the death of a lawbreaker. He had to take our place. He had to take God's wrath. 
He had to take God's punishment. He had to take it all the way to the grave in the most brutal way possible. And there was no more brutal way to die in all of the world than by crucifixion by the Roman soldiers. They had, protect, they had perfected excruciating pain for criminals. If we desire to be truly blessed, to be made truly whole, we must find it in the one who is truly broken apart for us. Since he suffered, we can be refreshed. Christ doesn't pat us on the back and say, you can do this. Look what I've done for you. Suck it up and stop complaining. He does not appeal to some kind of sentimental, you know, superficial sentimentality that tells us that everything will work out fine. Rather, he points us to all that he has accomplished through his suffering. Peter calls it a time of refreshing, a time to be made whole, a time to full health, and the restoring of all things about which God has ever spoken, all of the blessings of God, all of the joy of his relationship, all of the promise of his presence and peace is ours because Jesus suffered in our place. Like this crippled man, we usually begin to seek things from God that are far too little. He is approached by Peter and John, and he says, do you have any money? And he says, I don't have money. I'm going to give you something better. We ordinarily approach God and say, God, would you just help my life be better? Would you take away a little suffering? I'm having this problem in my life, and I have this prayer in the midst of my agony. Can you help this thing? But when we come to know the real God, he gives us something far greater than comfort. He gives us his presence. He gives us himself. He gives us something far greater than we can ever envision. It may feel very uncomfortable to focus on suffering. We don't like to focus on suffering. But to those who have come to see their own failure, failure to live up to God's commands, the man on the cross who suffers for us becomes a beacon of hope and the source of all refreshing joy. He was broken apart so that we could be made whole. What a good gift from God. Let's pray.